0: I'm actually going to uh, spend the next three weeks talking about a very important subject, the subject of gratitude. Um, I understand that it may seem as though it's something to do with Thanksgiving specifically, uh, but if you don't know and you aren't aware, it's a very predominant theme throughout the Word of God. It's actually uh, very important and vital to our spiritual health. It's amazing how many passages of scripture even when the Lord is giving us wisdom or warning or things to heed where the topic of thanksgiving is actually included. And um, I understand that there may be people here that actually aren't from the United States. This is not where you were born um, or or raised, and you might be actually unfamiliar, but in the month of November, we celebrate Thanksgiving in the month of November, Um, the very first Thanksgiving actually was actually in October of 1621. That's not actually... Abraham Lincoln is the president that actually made it a national holiday. But in regards to the pilgrims and the Native Americans, and that very first Thanksgiving, it actually took place in October. It was at the end of that harvest um, season in 1621. And so today, actually, we're going to look at a, a, a passage of Scripture. I'll just say this. There is a lot of Scripture that we could... ...look at pertaining to Thanksgiving and gratitude, but there is one passage of Scripture in particular that I actually could not move beyond this week. So we're actually going to look at one singular uh, text in Scripture out of Romans 1. So if you want to turn there with me to Romans 1, some of you may be very familiar with this passage of Scripture... I don't know how many of you, if you take like one passage, one verse for an entire week, I have found over and over again that it's amazing that even verses that I'm familiar with, that I have maybe have read lots of times and actually can quote, even quotable scripture verses. When you begin to sit and actually stare at certain words in the, in the way and the order in which they're, they're spoken and conveyed how it actually, it's almost like you can unpack it in a way that you've never seen it before. And so there's actually, I love language. I love the power of words. I love, it's part of the reason I actually enjoy Hebrew and Greek, because it's phenomenal for me. I enjoy understanding the root meaning of what was intended and the complexity of how different words are connected. And and that's actually part of what we're going to look at today in Romans 1. But before we do that, I'm going to give you a little more context as far as this particular chapter that we're looking at today, is that in 1620, when the pilgrims arrived, they actually arrived in Cape Cod. That's actually where um, they landed, and for those of you that know American history, Jamestown in Virginia, there was a settlement, a settlement that was not very successful, as we know, (laughs) and so the settlement here in Cape Cod, they actually learned quite a bit from them, Um, And the extraordinary thing is if any of you have looked at American history, for anyone that's been around here, around Hilltop slash J-Hop for a while, you know me well enough to know when I was 16 years old, uh, part of actually what I believe my husband and I are doing today has to do with what the Lord spoke to me when I was 16. Um, But I was actually ruined by this. I, I, I had the blessing of going to an extraordinary Christian high school. My education I was blessed. I'll just say that. Uh, I got to choose. I mean, obviously I had to do like for my geometry exam, I built an octagon picnic table that was to prove that I could do geometry. Like (laughs) I, you know, I had to do written exams, but it was all very experiential. So in that they looked at students and they basically said, this is your gift mix. This is your talent. This is your calling. So you're going to develop a course around this. So I was actually given uh, Christian history, and I was able to teach Christian history and do Bible study courses at my Christian high school. So as part of that, this was um, part of my, um, basically my curriculum as a high school student was the light and the glory. And so although in the context of high school, you might be going, okay, I'm not going to read that book because it's too elementary, it's definitely not. If you are not familiar with the Christian history of our nation, And in many ways, it's being defamed and degraded, and also um, devalued. And in many circles, they actually want to deny it. I would highly, highly encourage uh, that you read this book. But it was actually this book when I was 16 years old, reading it in Christian high school. Um, I didn't necessarily know long-term, like, calling what I was going to do. Like, I didn't know if I'd go into, like, law or anything like that. But all I did know is from reading the pages of this, I grew up in New England. Reading the pages of this, I began to be awakened that God had a dream in his heart for New England. It's undeniably evident when you read documents and articles and and even some of the very, very first covenants that were written. Not things that we have interpreted nowadays, but the original documents and the articulation of the men that founded our nation. That they felt, they themselves felt as though they were on a mission from God. That God had sent them. And so the extraordinary thing tomorrow is November 11th, which many of us may not realize, but November 11th is actually very significant. In 1620, November 11th, while they were still aboard the Mayflower at the harbor, they wrote something called the Mayflower Compact. Totally simple. Not a long document. I could read the whole thing because it's like maybe seven sentences. But in essence, what it was is the men, um, which there was about 40, approximately 40 of them, maybe less than that, 35 that signed it. The men that were upon the... Mayflower, what they did is they actually signed a covenant, and that's the word that they used. They used it as a covenant between them and God, and the beautiful articulation of what they actually said is that they were undertaking for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, the founding of this new settlement. For the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Does it sound like they had an agenda? (laughs) It sounds like they had a very clear agenda. So 1620, so imagine it this way. There's Native Americans in New England, but there is no other settlement. There is no other established civilization when they are come. So when you read this book, one of the things that will wreck your heart completely is, so they landed um, that year in 1620. By the time they made it to March of that year, they had lost over half of their community to sickness, to disease. You figure, you know how cold winter is. How would you like it if you had to camp out all winter and you had limited food source of what you brought from Europe and all of those things? So they lost half their population. There was at one point during their settlement that there was only five men, only five well-bodied men who were well enough and not diseased and sick to be able to care for the rest of the community. They were the only ones to be able to care. So basically, it's, an, it's the understanding of their struggle their wrestle, their toil at the founding of our nation. So when they celebrated the first Thanksgiving, literally in 1621, what they were celebrating is 47 of them survived and lived and made it. So you, we as a nation, the reality that America knows today is because a very small company of people that sacrificed and gave and they had a vision that was beyond themselves. Because, let's just be honest, they could have stayed in Europe. (laughs) Fully clothed, comfortable with all the provision that was needed. But as I read to you, the Mayflower Compact uh, on November 11th, the covenant that they made before God, was that they were undertaking this settlement for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. God had a dream for New England. And the extraordinary thing actually original documents, when you read in this book, it would talk about the hardship, people dying. They actually, it was like up to basically one person a day would die within those first winter months that they were here. And so when they had made it to February, they were kind of going through the death toll. But literally what it said is they determined not to grumble or complain. And no matter how hard it was, do you know what it said of them? No matter how hard it was, they prayed harder. Can you even imagine if that was our kind of resolve? I don't know about you, but sometimes when it gets hard for me, I don't think I'm just going to pray harder. I think I'm just going to take a nap. <laughs> I'm going to end my fast. I'm going to eat chocolate cake. <laughs> Let's be honest. I mean, really. I mean, do, do we have that kind of, in, in our modern Christianity, that would be called striving, wouldn't it? If we said no matter how hard it gets, I'm going to pray harder. Everybody would be looking at you going, you're into work, Sister. You don't understand the grace of God. <laughs> no, they had a resolve in their spirit that there was a holy mandate that was upon their life. And they would not be given to defeat and despair, to discouragement, to grumbling and complaining. They, yes, they celebrated in 1621, the first Thanksgiving, but they lived with a posture and an attitude of Thanksgiving continually. It's what that gave them the grace to continue and the grace to go on. You know, I, I'm going to stop with the story of our founding, the, the pilgrims here. But, you know, there is a lot to learn. There really is a lot to learn from the founding of our country. Because very few of us think about our posterity in generations to come. What is the legacy that we're leaving them? Very few of us value what a company of 47 people can do. And the sacrifice of them laying down their lives in love and obedience to Jesus Christ, the door that it could open for generations. If you think of the blessing, even of the preaching of the gospel that has come out of America, that it would not be if it wasn't for those 47 that endured, that continued. I mean, it speaks to the power of small companies of people. It speaks to the power of knowing what it is not to live for our own comfort and our own ease, but to a greater purpose and a greater vision. But I want you to turn to Romans 1. So Thanksgiving, we're getting ready. 47 men and women survived that first year. They gathered together. You know, the story actually says that when they invited the Native Americans um, to celebrate, that there was like 90 Native Americans that were coming. And they literally started panicking like, oh my goodness, everything that we have actually built up for and that we're going to use through the winter, because they were heading into another winter season after that harvest, they panicked. They're going to eat it all and we'll have nothing left. So it says that they actually prayed and asked God to provide. And of course, the Native Americans, because they were much more seasoned in this, they brought like 10 deer for them to eat. And so they actually ended up with abundance because they came and because of the blessing that was there. Um, but in Romans 1... Um, for those of you that don't know me, uh, yes, we are a local church here in Boston, Cambridge, Massachusetts. We have a house of prayer. Uh, there's many things that we do locally, but all of us kind of have things that make us tick inwardly. And you know what I mean? It's, there's things that consume your thoughts, your prayers, uh, consume your brain power when no one else is looking. There are things, it's what you're interested in, it's what you're passionate about, it's uh, what your gift mixes, things like that. For me, a very large preoccupation of my mind and my heart is the state of our nation. A very large preoccupation of my mental energy in meditation is this, yes, New England at large, because I feel like that's the scope of influence the Lord's given us, but America at large, how do we see a nation turn back to God? And also specifically in light of something like this book, The Light and the Glory, understanding our Christian heritage and that God did have a dream. And if he had a dream, he intends to fulfill it. And what does that look like? So in the midst of my, and I'll be honest with you, in my, when I say my wrestlings, I truly mean in my wrestlings, because I go back and forth between, okay, book of revelations, it's all going to get really dark and ugly. So is it all just going to go to hell? And this is my portion and my son's going to see Armageddon. You know, I go back and forth between what does it look like? And really in sincerity and integrity, what is it that we can pray for and labor for? that is not in vain but is according to the will and the purpose of God because who wants to labor in vain not i thank you very much so this is kind of my in and Romans 1 speaks volumes to me about our nation Romans 1 when i scratch my head and go we're a nation that professes to be a christian nation i don't know actually if we are anymore I mean, is that a fact? I don't even know. I I don't even, I think kind of with the change of things over the last few years, it might not be our profession (laughs) any longer to be a Christian nation, but that's what we've been known as. So I'm in um, a a homeschool group with my son this week, and as a disclaimer to this, just keep in mind, not everybody that homeschools is a Christian, right? Right? I mean, there's lots of motivations and reasons for homeschooling. So just mind you, I'm with a group of moms. We're all together. And not everybody in there is a Bible-believing Christian. There's, they're actually quite the opposite to some. So we're in this group, and mind you, we all know, if you know me, I have very, very, very strong views (laughs) on things politically, on things spiritually, on, you know. So I intentionally, in groups like this, do not bring up anything where I'm going to get a little heat under my collar and want to debate. You know, I intentionally move around it and just think, okay, for the sake of peace and the sake of homeschooling, let's just focus on (laughs) the... So, one woman, I don't know what possessed her. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Just wasn't good. But she, she, how did it start? Mm, whatever. Anyway, we had, the conversation amongst us moms, and mind you, we all have like four and five year olds running around the room at this homeschool meeting. The conversation went to the bathroom bill in Massachusetts. Any of you know about the bathroom bill in Massachusetts? Transgender. Okay, so out the gate here, we love you all. Whether you're a man, woman, if you're confused in your gender, identity, orientation, you are loved. And I understand there's people in this room that this touches and affects. You are loved. But according to the word of God, just like any of us, if I struggle with lust in my heart toward adultery, it's a sin and Jesus Christ wants to set me free. The same is true with any sexual desire that is not founded in the identity of Christ in the way he has created us and ordained us to be. So, blanket statement there. The ground of the cross is level. So, if I have perversion in my heart, it, it needs to be cleansed and set free by the power and the blood of Jesus Christ, just like any other sexual sin. So, anyway, so this co- topic of conversation comes up about transgender bathrooms. And I can feel myself going, oh, man, don't, don't even go there with me. Because I've been at the state house debating it. <laughs> you know, sitting there waiting for my turn. to. <laughs> so, the topic comes up and, you know, I'm thinking, okay, we're all young moms with like four or five year old children. I think we're gonna probably land somewhere that we agree together here. Uh uh, not at all. So the conversation goes to these moms really outraged like, what's the problem with transgender bathrooms? Like, why would anybody have a problem? And, you know, so then they start explaining about the stalls and how all the bathrooms are going to be redesigned. And, you know, one woman's talking about her niece that in in school she's a man and at home she's a girl. And we're all going through it. And I'm sitting there just as long as I possibly can, just, you know, like twitching kind of. But I'm listening and, you know, I'm trying to hear where they're coming from and understand. So finally I'm like, okay, I'm going to put all of God-created male and female. I'm going to forget like all of Genesis here. I'm going to forget. I'm just going to put that aside. Just going to put that on the shelf because the, the word of God is not everybody's authority. I'm going to put aside anything about male and female made in the image of God. I'm going to put aside all Bible theology. And I just simply said, which this is where it gets more disturbing. I, I just simply said, I said, well, all, every other argument aside, I said, what do you do with victims of rape, rape incest, and molestation? And they all like looked at me kind of like, excuse me. And I said, no, really, what do you do? I said, it, it's reported that three out of five young girls are in some way sexually either abused or exposed to even sexual harassment. That's not saying physically touch, you know, whatever. So I started talking about the sexualization of a generation. And I said, all I know is when I've ministered to victims of rape, I said, if they were ever to see a stature that even looked like a man, even if he wants to say, well, today I'm a girl, I said, that's traumatizing in a female bathroom to be alone in closed quarters, isolated with the fear of what could happen. And I said, so forget the liberties that the individual that's confused wants to take. What about the liberties of other people? And so I started talking about that, and I just even said, so in, your, in our public schools, this is what's going to be happening. And I said, and now you have children that have been sexually abused, and now you're, having, you're crossing genders in restrooms. I said, who's to say what level of exposure and how this will perpetuate? So I'm more talking about the safety element. And out of nowhere, like forget safety, any of these things. One of the moms literally goes, well, it's all how you really want to define define sexual abuse. Like, are those girls really being abused or do they just feel violated? And I, I realized right there, I realized right there, I felt like going, I don't care what level of degree of abuse. You violate somebody else's innocence, you have done wrong. And you have violated them, and it is an abuse. But what I realized is, is I was like, the mark of sanity has moved so far in our generation. I could not even have a rational conversation with young moms my own age. And I'm looking at my four-year-old son sitting in the corner playing with other four-year-old children, and I'm sitting there thinking, what does this look like? If this is our level of toleration and embracing, and accepting. If we can't, forget transgender. I don't care where you stand on that. If you can't even be outraged over the sexual abuse and molestation and the sexualization of a young generation, if that one topic alone doesn't make you alarmed and concerned and say, there's something that needs to be done. But instead, this group basically went on to uh, protect The side of the abuser claiming, well, who really knows what the, and you know, in all honesty, it used to be that in psychology, if someone struggled with pedophilia, attraction towards children, it used to be diagnosed as a disorder. And now they're actually changing to diagnose it as an orientation, which would be a preference. This is where our culture is moving and the line in which it's, and what I realized is is I really, I'm just going to be honest, I came home from that little homeschool meeting really mad, like really Like, I have lived my life for a very long time praying for a great awakening in our country. I have been praying and knowing that we need revival in America. I've been praying for it, but in some sense, I think seeing my son in that room and the question of what does this look like in five to ten years? What are the ramifications? How do we, and even the opening of the door To sexualization, where there is no longer outrage concerning it. And you know what I realized when I got home that night? And you know, I was fuming, and my husband definitely knew I was mad. Um, I sat there praying, and what I realized is Romans 1, which is what we're going to look at. What I realized is this we have been given over to a debased mind, our country has been given over to a debased mind. And in some ways, I know that there's some people sitting back and they, they talk about like judgment upon a nation. Like, is God going to judge us? Is he going to like, you know, kind of, he said in Moses' day he wouldn't flood us anymore, but is he going to judge America? According to Romans 1, when he has given you over to a debased mind, that is a judgment. You know what it is? It's saying, here, go ahead. Ha, there, that's who you are without me. I'll take off my restraint. I'll take off my grace. And you have your carnal, lowly wicked mind and see what you bring upon yourself. So Romans 1. Romans 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Okay, let's just stop here for a second before we move on. For since the creation of the world what is seen and what is revealed. His invisible attributes are clearly seen and being understood by the, things that are what, by the things that are made, by creation, by nature, by what is surrounding us. Even his eternal power and Godhead, it's saying that they're revealed by what he has made. His eternal power and Godhead are revealed so that they are without excuse. I'm not going to take too much time on this particular passages of scripture here. But in essence, what is being said here is that creation alone reveals the power. That there is no place on earth that God's power and the Godhead is not revealed through what he has made. I mean, it's a frightening, actually, statement where it says that so that they are without excuse, meaning that if you ponder creation and if you wait and behold creation long enough, that it has to bring you to the creator, that that is where it it has to bring you to that there is someone, something that is far beyond yourself that you yourself did not create those clouds in the sky. The mystery of the sun and the moon, that there is someone far beyond the created order to strike awe and wonder in the heart of mankind. Verse 21, because although they knew God, say with me, knew God. They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful But became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, and the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. And for this reason, God gave them up to their vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for, uh, of, for what is against nature. Likewise, also men leaving the natural use of a woman. They burned in lust for other men men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which is due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetous, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-minded, They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. There is a lot in this passage of scripture, but first and foremost, I would say that we as a nation, we, we do profess to know God. How many of you guys have even ministered or talked with somebody that is in major devastation and brokenness in their life, and they'll, they'll say, I know God. I, I know God. I've said the sinner's prayer. I know God. Even as a nation, the, if, if we took a poll of Christianity in our culture, the amount of people that would profess Christ, it would indicate that we are largely a Christian Bible-believing nation. So where does the crisis come in? The crisis comes in that when we as individuals, when we say, I know God, we, we have a knowledge of who he is. There is a knowing of who he is. But the question comes to us, are you glorifying him? The question comes to each and every one of us, uh, those of us that pray for our nation, that long for transformation and revival. What is the answer when all across our country, people have sat in pews and sat in churches all over America? What causes a great turning? It's when we move from the place of simply saying that we know God, that we have a knowledge of him, that we have a mental assent to what is right, what is wrong, how things should be. When we move to the place of saying, I want to glorify God. And the question then becomes, are we glorifying God? What does it look like to glorify God? This is actually the, word, uh, the root word for glorify. To glorify means to praise or to exalt, to magnify or to celebrate, to honor and to hold in honor. Do we hold God in honor? If you think about it, for every person in this country that professed that they knew God, they honored him in the secret places of our homes. If they honored God in the workplace. They honored God with their choice of television viewing, with their choice of all of these things. If we were wrestling to honor God in every area of our life, that's truly what it means to glorify him. To honor God means to make glorious, to to clothe with splendor, to render as excellent. I actually love this. To honor means do we cause his dignity and worth? To become manifest and acknowledged? Does our life cause his dignity and worth to be manifest and acknowledged by others? Do we give God the most exalted state? The word to glorify means to give the most exalted state. So moving beyond, I know God, to I give him the most exalted state in my life. That's powerful. It would change everything. It's, ki- it's kingly majesty which belongs to him as the supreme ruler. Majesty is a sense of absolute perfection of deity. So to say we know God... The question then becomes, do we glorify him? Not just glorify him as another person, glorify him as another option, glorify him as another image, but as God. Because if we glorify him for who he is, that means that he requires either everything or nothing. See, it's key. They didn't just say glorify him as a friend. Glorify him as a savior. Glorify him as husband. You know, all of the things that he can be to us. Paul specified, glorify him as God. Because that means, if it's God, then it means he's supreme and he is above all else. If, it, if it's God, then it means that you cannot approach him casually. But he calls for the supremacy and the lordship in our life. Do we glorify him as God? I mean, ever since I've been meditating on this passage of scripture, I feel like it's exploding inside of me. I mean, I love God. I have a relationship with God. But there is an element where I am saying, I want my son to see a life that glorifies God in every detail, in every nuance, in every word, in every attitude, in every expression. They did not glorify him as God. What does that mean for all of us in the Christian church? What does it mean when we profess to know God, but we don't glorify him as God? Do you know what it means? Is that there comes a point in time where more and more our mind and our, because you know what he goes on to say? He said, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. Thankful. I mean, it's pretty harsh. When you study what theologians say about being thankful, they actually say the most ignorant of human, human people, that when you have a benefactor, someone that has given to you, someone that has blessed you, to not have gratitude and thankfulness, you, you are like the most ignorant individual. But that much more if it's God himself. <laughs> God himself that has blessed us and bestowed upon us that instead of living with gratitude and thanksgiving. You know, this really speaks right here, this understanding of being thankful toward God and, and glorifying him as God. I feel like this goes right to the very root of the Christianity in America of how we view God. I do. I, th- this is what I feel like. I feel as though we view God as his services to us. So, what this is saying is, they did not glorify him as God. That means they did not make much of him. They did not revel in his splendor, in his wonder. How much of the Christian teaching that we do in the United States is about God making much of us? Right? Don't get me wrong. I mean, I do. I, from the time I was young, before any other famous, amazing person. I used to say it to my mom all the time. I think I'm God's favorite. Like, I just feel like I, I think it, and he does it. Like, I, I've said that from the time I was little, and my mom be like, I think so too. You know, I mean... My first car, I remember sitting in a lumber yard and looking over, it was when like the Honda Civic, I don't know if you guys, I'm probably dating myself, but the the neck, the headrest thing was a certain design. It was like one, it doesn't matter. They had just come out. (laughs) And I was probably like, you know, 14 and I'm like, I want that car for my first car. Well lo and behold, <laughs> it was my first car. <laughs> I mean, all of those kind of things where not begging, asking, pleading for God to just wishes and desires. Like, plop, there you go, plop, there you go. Like, I mean, I feel blessed. So let me just say, I, I'm not saying God doesn't want to bless you. I think he likes us. And because he likes us, he loves to give us the desires of our heart. But what I'm saying is when our Christianity has been become more about a Santa Claus, Right? And when we live with that perspective of I'm signing up because He's going to make me prosperous, He's going to make me beautiful, I'm going to shed twenty pounds. When I say Praise the Lord, Hallelujah, you know, like kind of like what He is going to do for me. It's going to make me more popular. I'm going to pray and I'm going to get straight A's. I'm going to get a new job. I'm going to, you know, it's kind of like that thinking that somehow God is going to do for you what He's entrusted for you to do. There's boundary lines in the spirit, for those of us that don't understand in the charismatic world, is that there's things that God himself, that only he can do, but then there's other things that He has entrusted to man, and he can if he wants to, but he's saying, it's not for me to do, it's for you. (laughs) I've entrusted it for you to do, go ahead, work, go ahead, work, work, that's how you make money, I ain't going to drop it from the sky, (laughs) right? How many of us have prayed for something, like somehow God's going to (laughs) like, right? God, build me a new addition. There you go. Just do it. No, go see an architect. Put your feet to the ground and do something. Use the brain the good Lord gave you. But that's what I'm saying is somehow we view what God has, has for us, what he, we have entitled to us, right? It's more of a perspective. And I feel like this passage of Scripture cuts right to the roots of our understanding that yes, we know God, but do we glorify him as God? Is it about who he is to us and we, what do we want him to do for us? Or is it about how he has called us to worship him and live in fellowship with him? How many of the desires of our heart, how many of the prayers of our life, how many of longings within us would be satisfied and fulfilled if we were doing what we were created to do? Living as we were created to live. So the word to glorify. It is to give God the most exalted state in our life. They never denied the existence of God, but they had no reverence for his name. Reverence for his name. What would it look like if we had reverence for his name? Awe and wonder. That we actually had a place of the reverential fear of the Lord that was restored to us. These people further had no right concepts of God. If God is anything, we ought to make him everything. You cannot put God in second place. If he is in second place, you have not seen him as God. That if we've truly seen him as God, that he is at the center of it all and he is worthy to be worshipped and adored. Secondly, so we find, first of all, it's the want for, it's reverence. It's the lack of reverence. It's a lack of glorifying who he is. And then second, it's a lack of gratitude. If you think about it this way, it doesn't matter what we think about God. Whatever your image, whatever your view of God, because this is actually what we find here, is that there was knowledge of who God is, but that knowledge did not lead to greater worship and greater gratitude. So that speaks to every single one of us here. I mean, we can do, we can read the word, we can study the word, we can even study theology. But if our knowledge of who God is, is not drawing us into a greater place of glorifying him. Even a greater place of gratitude. It's actually, what it's doing is it's puffing us up. How many of you guys are familiar? Um, There's two gentlemen, actually, in the Bible. The rich young ruler and um, Nicodemus, actually, is the second one. There are two individuals that they did it all right. <laughs> I mean, Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was like a ruler over the Jews. He, he had it down, right? He had all the outward things to do and ways to do it. He was living according to the structure and the system. And then you have the rich young ruler. You guys know, he goes basically to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus kind of gives him a couple, you know, little things. And he he retorts back, I've done that since the days of my youth. Kind of like, and what we see here is the place of the heart. We see in both situations, basically, Jesus is saying, it's not about what you're doing outwardly. It's about the inward place of the heart. And that's what we find Jesus is always drawing us back to in the place of, of provoking us is the response of the heart. So it's not so much about what we know about him, what we've learned about him, even what we can echo back about who God is, not how much scripture we can quote. But the question then becomes, is it drawing us to a place that we glorify him as God in our lives and that we are thankful This place of gratitude, I want you to turn to Colossians 2. Uh, 2 verse 4. This is actually where we find the, the emphasis placed upon thanksgiving once again. Now this I say, lest any of you, you should, anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, As you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. He's talking about being established in the faith, and he's saying, And abounding in thanksgiving, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. That word abounding is actually powerful. It means to exceed in abundance, to overflow and excel. Be excellent. He's saying be excellent in thanksgiving. Exceed in abundant thanksgiving. That's not like, just make sure once a day you wing up like a gratitude prayer. Like, thank you. Thank you for my life. Let's just be honest. My son, I mean, my, my life orbits around my son. I don't have to remind myself. Like, I don't have it on my chalkboard at home. Thank God for Abram today. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like I'm commanding myself. Remember, thank God. I honestly don't think that there's been a day since Abram's been born, not because I'm trying to discipline myself to do it, but whether it's we're praying in the morning at breakfast or reading his Bible or going to bed at night, that probably the first response when I'm praying for him is, thank you, God, for the gift of my son. But you know what it is? It's because my heart is tender towards him. Our gratitude actually speaks about the tenderness of our heart the responsiveness of our heart, how tender we are to the gift. Think about it this way. So to, be, to glorify him as God and be thankful. If you think about it, in our lives, how do we display gratitude? What's a way, are we grateful for the word of God? How would we know if we're grateful for the word of God? It's be because we treasure it, we read it, we pay attention to it. But in all honesty, not to offend anybody here, But if we go an entire week without reading the word, it probably actually speaks to the fact that we're not valuing it and esteeming it. I understand we're all busy, I got it. But it's amazing how you really find time (laughs) for what's important to you. Whether that's sports updates, whether that's Facebook, you'll find it if it's a priority. Grateful. If we're grateful for the word of God, are we grateful for the spirit of God? Do we live in fellowship and communion with the Spirit of God? Just speaking of these places, of our, do we live with thanksgiving and gratitude? Not even necessarily just saying it, but as a response of our heart that we are grateful for the gift of his son, that we are grateful for the word that he has entrusted to us. Well, I'm, I'm, another simple one is, are we grateful for the Sabbath? It's actually amazing how, you know, Abram's learning the Ten Commandments, and I've, I've realized, like, I think the Ten Commandments, like, I understand it's all heart, all of that, but I honestly think the Ten Commandments, that if we were to give precedence to really breaking them down, like, really breaking it down, like, okay, so with Abram, I'm not doing, like, thou shall not murder, because I don't think he's going to go out and kill anybody right now, but I'm speaking about hatred in his heart, having hatred in your heart. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times with my young son, the issue of jealousy Like where he even talks about not envying or coveting what another person has. If he's even like, oh, my cousin has such and such. I'm like, oh, Abram, we don't desire what other people have. We're grateful for what God's put in front of us. The place of the Ten Commandments, that if we would just simply give the attention to those things... In accordance with that, the Sabbath. Are we grateful for the Sabbath? Do you realize that there's one day a week where God said, okay, go work, go toil, go labor, go go tend to your natural life, do what you need to do? And then he says, but keep the Sabbath holy. It's a day to give him our attention. It's a day to stop everything else and say you are worthy to be worshiped and adored. Are we grateful for the Sabbath and do we honor it? Do we esteem it the way that he has called us to? I'm actually going to just tie up very quickly here with Romans 1. I'm going to go back to that text and close out with it and just give you two practical areas of how we glorify God. So because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. So it speaks about, the, it, this articulates two areas, the thoughts and the hearts. Our thoughts be, be, being given over to our futile thoughts and our foolish hearts being darkened, professing to be wise, they become fools and change the glory of the incorruptible God in, into the image made like corruptible man. The extraordinary thing is the glory of an incorruptible God, the greatest gift God ever gave man is that he created God in his image. But the greatest dishonor we've ever done to God or we can do to God is that instead of glorifying him for who he is as God, of making him into the image of man, of somehow lowering him to our understanding, our, our articulation of who man is, of reducing him to appear rather than worshiping him as the God that he truly is. Uh, verse 24, therefore God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves. And this is where I read to you earlier, um, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And that's what we find as a culture, is that instead of being captivated in an awe and wonder with the creator of the universe. Creation has become what we worship. If you think about it in the sports industry, if you think about it with modeling, with fashion, if you even think about it intellectually, as far as even in the realm of philosophy, that somehow we think that there is an answer amongst man, that man is going to come up with something. And the the, the premise for this entire chapter, Romans one, I mean, if you had to boil it down, I would actually say what it means is apart from God, we're insane. I mean, I know that sounds dramatic and crazy, but he literally says, I'll give you over to a futile mind. What he says is, I'm going to lift my grace off of you. I'm going to lift my restraining power, and you go ahead and see who you are in your humanity. And that's precisely what we're seeing in American culture. Who we are in our humanity apart from God. That somehow we think we can say we know God. How many, I mean, whether they're politicians actresses, predominant people in culture will name the name of Christ, but yet their life does not glorify him. And in fact, it does the exact opposite. But that's actually what we're finding all throughout our culture and society. We have reduced him to the image of man. We somehow think that we can approach him as we would approach fallen man. That we can take him casually and lightly instead of understanding that everything that he said in this word, it is not debatable. It is because he is all wise, he is all knowing, that even if it does not make sense to your natural mind today, certain things that he has declared as true and that he has commanded, if we will heed his counsel, it brings life and prosperity. You know, the word of God says that there is a way that it seems right unto man. But in the end, it only leads to death. And that is the problem. When we divorce ourselves from the wisdom of God, when we somehow think that the word of God is irrelevant to our day, in our society. You need to understand something. I don't care how young you are and I don't care how old you are. The word of God is the most relevant thing to American society today. It is the most relevant thing to politics. It is the most relevant thing on your campus. If you think that somehow we have to come up with an articulation of the word of God to fit the understanding and the reasoning of man, right there what we have done is we have bought the lie that it says in Romans. I've given you over to the lie it's a lying spirit but instead he says stand firm upon the word of God do not waver everything in my counsel is true it is eternal everything in this fallen age is temporal it is completely temporal you can sign up for some doctrine of religion today and I guarantee you in 10 to 15 years it'll be a fad probably sooner than that it'll be a fading fad and you will have given and fallen and, and followed something that was the wisdom of man. The wisdom of man. It says, although they knew me, they did not glorify me as God. And that's precisely what I, I, I need to tie this up, but that is precisely what I saw in my little homeschool group. People that live in American culture and society, we are a Christian nation but we have been given over to a debased mind. And I say to all of us in this place that we desperately need to be a community, that we do not profess to know God, that we do not profess to even glory in the fact that I'm saved, once saved, always saved, They knew God, but they did not glorify him as God. Let's make that the prayer of our life, that our lives would glorify him as God, that he would have the preeminence in every area of our life to glorify him as God, that he would be exalted above all else. Nor were they thankful. I just want to encourage us and close out on this note today. That the attitude of our heart in gratitude and thanksgiving, it reveals the tenderness of our heart towards the Lord. And I'm not saying like today if you didn't thank God for your house and your car, you're not, you don't have a grateful heart. You know, I don't think I even every day go, thank you for my house and car. I don't think I even thanked him for my car. <laughs> what I'm saying is the response of gratitude, of God, I'm grateful for your word. I don't take your word for granted. I treasure your word. I value your word. And because of that, I give your word preeminence in my life. What we see in Romans 1 is that the fundamental bottom line root problem with the human race has to do with what we make of the glory of God. It has to do with our image of God. And have we made him in the image of man? Or if we exalted him and given him the preeminence, the name above all names in our life. That he is worthy of all worship. He is worthy of all adoration. He is worthy of it all. And you know, if we pray anything for our country, this is what we need to pray. Is that we would move away from a knowledge that has not led us to glorify the Son of Man. You know, if anybody's been here for any period of time, I've, I've shared that there was a, a time when I was in um, the prayer room in Kansas City, and there was amazing worship happening, and I was having like a real tender moment towards the Lord, and I was being sincere. I was praying for Boston, the missions movement, the glory of the Lord to the nations of the earth, and as I'm like weeping, I say to the Lord, I'm like, I am just jealous for your glory and your fame and the nations of the earth, Lord. And I mean, I'm saying it with everything within me, bawling. And he replies so tenderly back to me and says, I'm jealous of the glory and the fame of my name in your life. You know, it brought it from like out there, (laughs) like how to get God's glory to cover the earth, Habakkuk, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. As it covers the seas I mean I pray that that's my passion but it brought it kind of like right here of saying he's glory he's jealous for the glory of his name in your life you don't even have to worry about like transforming your campus transforming your neighborhood he's glory he's jealous for the glory of his name in your, that means in your emotions that means in your priorities it means in your thoughts that means your attitudes. means how you spend your time. And you know the amazing thing is that we as individuals, if we begin to live with that focused clarity that he's jealous for the glory of his name in our life, as a simple, natural byproduct, he will have the glory of his name in Boston, in New England, in America, in the nations of the earth. If this is the posture of the Church of Jesus Christ, that he's jealous for the glory of his name in your individual life, in your family, in your business. Why don't we all stand to our feet? God, we recognize, Lord, that even as we opened up today, Father, talking about the founders of our nation, the Christian heritage of America, Lord, as we were founded upon truth, and Lord, even as they declared, Lord, that they were... um, coming to establish a Christian nation for the advancement of the Christian faith. God, I ask, Lord, that even in this Thanksgiving season, Father, Lord, that we would not do things according to ritual and tradition, but, Lord, that the inward place of our life would truly be moved in thanksgiving and gratitude, in tenderness to you, And God, this morning, this evening, God, we we do, we lift our nation before you, Father. God, even as we see, God, all throughout the news and politics, laws and legislation, Lord, even sex trafficking and crimes against children, Lord, the debased mind that our nation has been given over to. God, we confess before you today, Father, that we We've professed that we know God as a nation. But yet we do not glorify you as God and we are not thankful. God, we ask, Lord, that you would begin with us as a community. That you would begin with us as a people. Lord, we say, Father, that we don't want knowledge that remains in theory or in even in intellect. But God, the knowledge that we have of you, God, we want it to lead us to glorifying your name, to glorifying you as God, and having a heart response that is thankful and obedient and reverent. God, we ask, Lord, that even now, Lord, that you'd speak to us, Lord, individually. God, individual lives. God, we say we want you to have the glory of your name in our individual lives. And God, I ask you, Father, that out of Cambridge, Lord, out of Boston, out of New England, Lord, that individual lives would be ignited with the flame of devotion, with the flame of the fire of the Holy Spirit. Individual lives would be laid upon the altar of sacrifice. Lord, that we would not be those that simply articulate a knowledge of God, but that every area of our life would manifest your greatness and your worth. That every area of our life would glorify your name. And God, through, Lord, living embers, Lord, that your name would be glorified in the nations of the earth. God, we say make your name great in Boston and New England. And God, we say do it through individual lives, through individual families that have been consumed with a passion for your name, for the glory of your name. We say have the preeminence in our life, God. Have the preeminence in our life. We're going to close out with a song of worship. If there's any person that wants prayer, the prayer of agreement Um, or just even in response to the word, if there's something that you want prayer for, I just encourage you, if there's anything that the Lord has provoked in your heart today, it's always good to take time to respond to him, to not move quickly past things that he is speaking to us and stirring in our hearts, but to respond to him and to give him time and attention to do those things. So we're going to close out with a song of worship. And if there's anybody that wants prayer for this or for any other matter, I'm here and there's some of our staff here to pray with you. Bless you.